This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. still in a series that's been going on for some time called Transforming Grace and I want to talk to, uh, this morning about excelling in the grace of giving. Okay, I'm going to talk from uh, the, the uh, second letter to the Corinthians and it's funny if you think about, uh, I don't know if anyone's ever been to Corinth, um, it's uh, actually in Greece, it's just south of, um, just south of Athens and it sits on this kind of thin isthmus uh, of land between uh, two seas um, and, and, it, and its wealth, it was a quite a wealthy place because uh, it was a kind of transfer port that rather than sail around the whole of the bottom of the Greece, that they, people would pull into one port, they'd put up their stuff on wagons and ship it across to the other port and everything that went through Corinth on wagons uh, meant that they had money uh, for what they were doing. So, uh, and in one sense, um, you can think, well, that, that kind of life in, in Corinth in the first century is, a, is massively removed from um, uh, 21st century Cheltenham. I mean, some of our architecture is, is sort of Greco-Roman, but you could probably think that the challenges that they faced is really different from, you know, the challenges we face. You know, they've got chariots and slavery, we've got internet and, and kind of hybrid cars, and, and, and you can think that actually there's, there's no connection and, but actually, what is interesting is, uh, I think, that, that we are very much more, more like Corinth than we're different from Corinth. Yes, technology and sophisticated society, but people's obsessions are still the same. And if you read the, 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 the letters uh, that Paul writes to uh, the church in Corinth, they're obsessed with two things, money and sex. Obviously, they're not obsessions of our society at all. You know, that we never talk about sex. Uh, and we never talk about money. Uh, certainly, the, um, you know, if uh, uh, one writer said, it, if Aphrodite, that's the goddess of love, was their goddess, then Mammon, that's what Jesus calls the kind of idol of money, was their god. And it's, it's kind of subtle in Cheltenham. We tend, we tend not to be quite as obvious uh, about our sexual uh, challenges and we certainly don't like to talk about money as much. But, but in our culture, in both our culture and their culture, uh, then um, sex and money are venerated for the promise of s- ultimate self-expression and self-fulfillment. And what we're going to do uh, in a few weeks' time, not quite yet, there's, a, a, a few, there's another Giving Sunday and a dedication, but we're actually going to do a series called Divine Sex, uh, a biblical view of all things about sex, marriage, singleness and stuff. So we are going to talk about that, but obviously we're on the money side today. But the interesting thing, if you talk about sex or money in our society, you would receive massive pushback. I don't know if you've experienced that, 
that if you talk about, uh, about uh, you make comments about sex, sex and sexuality in our society, you receive massive pushback. If your views are different from society, um, and, uh, and, uh, and if you, you've got a different way of thinking about money, then you get pushback as well. It's almost like what happens is that, that whereas uh, 500 years ago it was the church that was, you know, not rightly burning heretics who didn't believe in things, now, if you say certain things about money and sex in society, then the reality is you are seen as a bigot or a heretic or something like that. And in churches, we don't really like talking about uh, sex and money. So, you know, it feels like, you know, it, 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 we t- we'll disciple ourselves on all sorts of stuff. So, you know, we might challenge ourselves in our threes about, are you reading your Bible? And that feels like it's an okay place to challenge. But we don't challenge each other about the kind of sexual intimacy and the right way to do it. Uh, and, I, you know, I've, if I make comment now, you might even feel I'm taking pot shots. But I think, you know, that, that, we, that are we clear about sexual in- intimacies between a man and a woman? And in and, and the same way with money, we feel like if you talk about money, it's going to make you feel very uncomfortable. Are we clear about that the Bible says about generously giving? You know, are we clear that uh, 10% is like the starting point, not the ending point? Are we, are we clear about that? We don't feel like we want to talk about that kind of stuff. And so as we talk about money, and I talk about money this morning, you may experience a certain amount of cultural unease. You may even be feeling it now. You might be thinking, I know what he's up to. These are typical churches, isn't it? Typical churches after your money. And this is a way for Howard to manipulate you, manipulate me to give your money because they've got this special offering and they want to spend it on something I'm not bothered about. And in the end, I just the more you push, the more I'm going to say no because I feel like that's typical of church, isn't it? Guys, I'm not trying to manipulate you. I want to stir you and encourage you, but I'm not trying to manipulate you. So let's read some of the, what Paul says. I've got a couple of slices out of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 uh, and then I've got... Um, Three points to say. So Paul's already talked about sex in the first part of his letters in Corinthians and certainly in 2 Corinthians. He's already talked about sex in the city and now it's cash in the city. So 2 Corinthians 8 verse 1. And now brothers and sisters, I want you to know about the grace. That that word keeps popping up in this, just spot how often. About the grace that God had given the Macedonian churches. Now Macedonia, it's uh, it's in the news at the moment, but actually it it was a part of Greece. And it's churches that you might know from the Bible... Uh, called Philippi or Philippians, Thessalonian, Thessalonica, Thessalonians, they, and also a, a place called Berea that doesn't get a letter. So it's those kind of churches. It says, I want you to know about the grace that God had given to the Macedonian churches in the midst of their very severe pressure, some translations say trial, but it's actually pressure, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us. So we urged Titus, that's, he's one of the leaders in the church, we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a start, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. 
But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete eagerness or earnestness, eagerness is better, it's more kind of energetic, and in love, in the love we share with you, see that you also excel in the grace of giving. Am I, not, I am not commanding you, but I want to test the genuine nature of your love by comparing it with the eagerness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And then jumping into chapter 9, verse 5, be ready with a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. Remembering this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you'll overflow in every good work. As it is written, they freely scatter their gifts to their poor, their righteousness endures forever. That's a quote from Proverbs. Now, he who supplied seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. And you'll be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion through us who, uh, uh, and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Father, we pray as we read these passages written to the Corinthians, yeah, but so relevant to ours and our culture. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to understand and see and look and learn and be transformed in how we view our money. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul's attempt to pull down the kind of idols of money worship in Corinth, he appeals to the grace of God. It doesn't appeal to a whole set of rules. It doesn't say this is the rule in the Old Testament or this is this rule or this is that rule. He appeals to the grace of God. Now the grace of God, it's God's undeserved favour to those undeserving of his goodness. So it's, it's, it's basically, we don't earn it, we don't deserve it, but it's God's favour to us. Remember, mercy is where God doesn't give us what we, the, the, the punishment we deserve. Grace is where he gives us blessing that we don't deserve. So the way he, uh, Paul tries to pull down this idol of money is he starts to talk about the God who wants to bless, the God who is full of grace. And you've probably heard me talk about this before, but humanity's story starts with grasping hands. We grab, Adam and Eve, it says, gra uh, grasp the fruit. We grab for the right to be our own God, to take and eat and satisfy ourselves. That was almost the temptation that you can, you, this is good food, you, you take this fruit, whatever it is, it's a, 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 it's a, I think it's a, a metaphor of reality that you take this fruit, you desire to be God, that you're going to eat this, you're going to take it in and you'll be satisfied, you'll, you'll somehow be like God. You'll somehow have all the privileges of Godness. And, and the reality is humanity is, is like that. We are grasping by nature. Bill Hybels uh, wrote this, uh, I think still a great quote. It says, at birth, our tiny hands are closed. Mine, we cry, as we grasp rattles and toys and then bike handlebars. At school and university, it's exam results and the hand of your girlfriend or boyfriend. Then you grasp the lowest rung of the career ladder and you hang on. 
and climb, grasping bonuses, houses and holidays as you go. In retirement, you hold to golf clubs, obviously that must be me, and pension funds, that is me, worry, worry. And then it's walking sticks, and at the end we clutch the edge of hospital beds, hanging on to life itself. Only when we die do we finally relax our grip. We are by nature grasping people. By nature we want to take and fill ourselves because there's something about us where we feel endlessly empty. You might not feel that, but that is our tendency. We live in this kind of not enough, empty culture. We, uh, uh, the rejecting God, we're empty of the life of God, slowly dying empty of the fulfilment we endlessly seek. It's interesting that word fulfilment comes from the old English word to make full. We're looking for self-fulfilment. We're looking for sexual fulfilment. We're looking for financial fulfilment. We're looking for career fulfilment because we endlessly feel we're empty. And, that's, and, and, and sex and money and career are not bad, but when you're trying to use them to fill a hole inside, you will never have enough. Will constantly, Adam and Eve, who take and eat, found themselves empty, found themselves exiled, found, them, found themselves not full of life, but poured out and full of death. Bernard Levin, in a quote that's from the 1970s, that's too good to let to go to waste, uh, Sunday Times columnist wrote this. It's actually a quote from the Alpha Course. Uh, it says this, Countries like ours are full of people with all the material comforts they desire together with such non-material blessings as happy family, as a happy family, and yet lead lives of quiet and at times noisy desperation, understanding nothing but the fact that there is a hole inside of them, and however much food and drink they pour into it, however many motor cars and te television sets they stuff it with, however many well-balanced, educated <laughs> children and loyal friends, they parade around the edge of it, it aches. It's still true, eh? It's still true. And it's so true in our society. It's so true in this town. Because it's so easy to compare up. And think, if only I had that. You know, I'm driving my car off the snowy drive and thinking... Why has my neighbour got a nice 4x4 four four and she just swings out of my driveway and I'm like sliding around with burning rubber. And it's so easy to think, well, if I had that, I'd be happy. You know, we're thinking about our holiday if we have this holiday. You know, the ultimate holiday experience. You know, I'm still searching for it. You get little sniffs of it, don't you, that keeps you going, coming back for more. But the truth is, it's a, it's a wasted journey. Grasping is the opposite of grace. Gra sin grasps, grace gives. Paul asked the wealthy Corinthians to look at three ways in which grace gives as a motivation to end the black hole life and to become people that overflow. So I've got three ways out of this passage uh, how grace teaches us to give. Okay, so the first one is uh, learning from the giving grace of others. Let's read. Paul asked the Corinthians to look at the giving grace of the Macedonian churches. He says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want you to know about the grace that God had given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of very severe pressure, their overflowing joy and extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. 
For I testify they gave as much as they were able. This is brilliant language. They gave as much as they're able, even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service of the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. The churches in, uh, in, in, in Philippi and Thessalonica were poor. They didn't have the benefits of the trade that Corinth had. They were generally poor. Um, and also the, the, you have to understand that, this, that Corinth and uh, Philippi was a bit of a Yorkshire-Lancashire thing, an England-Wales thing, England-Ireland thing. Actually, that was a great game. You know, it was a kind of, it's a, kind of a little bit of a local rivalry. And, and, and so he takes them and says, I want you to tell you about this church. So for us, it might be saying, I, I, I need to be careful which church, well, let's say Salford, that's where me and Nays were doing church before. I want to tell you about the people that live in Coronation Street in Salford. There is a Coronation Street in Salford. I want to tell you about the people that live in the, in the, in the rundown inner city area, the back-to-back houses of Salford. I want to tell you about their giving. That's what he's doing here. And you've got to understand that, 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 that the reason why the, this church, the churches in Macedonia were poor is because actually in those days Christianity made you poor. Um, in those days that Christianity was on the margins of Roman society, so it wasn't like if you wanted to be president of the United States you need to be seen in church on a Sunday, or if you want to be seen as acceptable you had to go, you know, uh, the, the certain schools you go to church and, and it's kind of part of, you know, uh, I think they say the Church of England is the Conservative Party at prayer. I, I shouldn't have even said that because you know, but well, you know, there's this kind of sense of the establishment, that's what we do. You know, it's less so now. Certainly when I was a kid it was so. But, but in, 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 in that culture, if you went to church, it was definitely not the right thing to do. You were going to put yourself in danger so you would, you'd suffer economic loss. So the people who had nothing were drawn to the church because they had nothing to lose, but the people who had a lot tended to sit back. Not all of them tended to sit back because the gospel, as I said, didn't make you materially richer. It made you poorer. You'd face harassment. You might f- uh, face denial of employment. Sometimes they were stripped of their possessions in the frequent per- persecutions of the church. Now, the gospel can work both ways, and God does bless us, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But actually, we are in a situation where what we're going to do, if it becomes a situation where you're going to lose your job for being a Christian, how would I cope with that? Well, you know, I probably it's not easy for me, but for you, you know. You know, you hear about this story of the lady, National Health Service, wearing a cross, prays for somebody, threatened with losing her job. These are poor Christians, and, and the gospel hasn't made them richer. It's made them under pressure. It says they were under severe pressure. But, it's, but, but th- th- that makes their giving even more remarkable because it says, Paul says, in the midst of very severe pressure, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. That's like. That's a mixed-up kind of verse, isn't it? Overflowing joy and extreme poverty. This is not a saying poverty is good, you know. But overflowing joy and extreme poverty do not tend to find themselves in the same sentence, do they? Or if they do, it's like, well, I would have, be over, I would have overflowing joy if I didn't have extreme poverty. 
You know, if I had lots of money, then I'd have overflowing joy. But here, he says, this church had overflowing joy in their extreme poverty. And it's almost like he uses like fountain language. It welled up in a rich generosity. The way it often works with us and money is, well, I'll give money when I've got more money. When I'm full, and I've said that that's a, a, an endless journey, when I'm really full, then I'll, ex I'll excel in the grace of giving. But actually, these Christians in their extreme poverty were empowered by God's grace, that's what Paul says, to overflow to give. And, and, and it's crazy. It says, that it says they, they gave as much as they were able and beyond their ability. I mean, it's, this isn't kind of like, well, okay, I'll, I'll give a tithe. I mean, we think a tithe is radical, isn't it? If you, does any, have you, any, any of you ever been to a restaurant? You don't think, outrageous. They're greedy so-and-sos at Bar Walk, wanting 10%. It's quite cheap at Bar Walk. It's only about four quid if you give a, tithe, give a tenth. You know, but you, you don't think that, do you? you think, well, fine, good service, 10%, 12. You know, in America now, if you don't give, if you're not pushing 15, it's like, hmm. You know, and, and the Americans are generous, so it's, they get that. And they don't think that's outrageous, they think that's fine. But we can talk in church and go, well, 10%? It's ridiculous. I'm putting me 10 quid in, leave me alone. But they are saying, no, 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 no. I, 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 gave, as, as, I gave as much as I'm able, even beyond their ability. I, I, I'll be honest with you, I have not filled in my form for the gift day and given beyond my ability. I've given within my ability. I have given, but I've given them my ability. But these poor Christians are giving beyond their ability. And in fact, they're crazy. Because they're bothering Paul and saying, can we give more? It says, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded us with the privilege of sharing in this service of the Lord's people. They exceeded even our expectations. Imagine that. Imagine what happens if people, you, you've got a, you're in church and, and, and people are coming to you and saying, I want to give money. I want to give money. Please, please, can I give money? No, 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 please. I want to give beyond my... No, no, no. That's what's happening here, isn't it? I'm not making this up. Paul, Paul says, well, we had a kind of target in our head for this gift day, and these poor people, like, blew it out of the water beyond our expectations. And he says, we didn't command them. We didn't say you must or do that under compulsion. This no. What, what's gone on in these Macedonian people? These Macedonian Christians? What have they seen? I'll give you a clue. Philippi. Letter to Philippians. They used to sing this song. I'll read the first verse because we haven't time to do both verses. You might have heard it. It's a song they used to sing. Perhaps in the church in Philippi because that's where uh, Paul quotes it. Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be... It's not about grasping. You've heard me preach on this before, I'm sure. For his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, he found in a, being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He gave more than he was able. He pleads with his father, he don't want to go to the cross, but if there's no other way, I'm going to do it all. I'm going to go all the way. This is the nature of the grace of the giving God. Not grasping and insatiably empty, but gracious and overflowing and giving himself. 
And that truth, that understanding of that truth, produced what Paul uses this fountain of worship. A fountain of worship that welled up in rich generosity. Phil Moore, in his little commentaries, Straight to the Heart, they're brilliant little books if you want to get them. He says this in this little passage. He says, giving is as concrete an act of worship as any song we sing on Sundays. Because the idol of money is not toppled by singing choruses, but by writing checks. I love it, eh? Well, you might not. You might think, oh, I'm already feeling the pressure. Most of us don't write checks these days, so we're feeling off the hook. But you get the point. <laughs> Lord Jesus, Lord, I give you my heart. I give you my soul. But keep your hands off me, money. Is that my Yorkshire accent there? Just to put it in for you, especially. And, and, and obviously, Jesus, Jesus doesn't have a bank account. So he tells them where to write their checks. He said they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us. Point two, learn from the transforming power of giving grace. So uh, we're in 2 Corinthians 9 now. It says, be ready with a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. Please, not as grudgingly given. Remember this, he, whoever sows sparingly also reaps sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what they've decided in their heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, you're going to have all that you need, and you will overflow in every good work. As it's written, he's freely given their gifts to the poor, their righteousness endures forever. That's a quote from Proverbs. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in every way so that you can have a nice car, a nice holiday. No, no, sorry. You'll be enriched in every way so you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Paul takes the urban dwellers of Corinth and takes them out to the peasant farmers. Uh, does anyone know what a subsistence farmer is? little geography lesson. Subsistence farmer are those that basically have got a small amount of seed and they live, what, they live off what they grow. So basically they've got this amount of seed and they've got this balance all the time between I need to eat bread, but if they eat all their f- seed, then the following year they've got no harvest. Now, we don't understand that kind of economics, but th- that's the economics he's taken them to. He says that, that you know, so the, the, he's saying, okay, it's a bit like a sower. Money is a bit like seed. You've got a certain amount. You might think you're wealthy, but here, in, take you to, to a, 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 a subsistence farmer. All the time, you've got a choice. What are you going to do? Are you going to make bread for this year, or are you going to sow for next year's harvest? Now, wise farmers understand they need to keep seed for sowing for the future and not eat it now. Our culture tells us, eat it now. Eat it now. So we always are eating, we're always spending our money now. We're always got... We're always spending to our limit, or we're spending the future's money. We're spending next the promise of next year's harvest on our credit cards because we want it now. But a farmer views money differently, views his seed differently. If he doesn't sow his seed of wheat for next year, he's going to starve. 
It's true, if you hold on to your money and never release your grip and don't take some of your money and sow it for a future harvest, soon enough your barns and your hands and your life will be empty. That's what Paul's saying. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will reap generously. It's just a law of farming. It's a law of economic investment. But for Paul, sowing is not about sowing so that you can have more. Paul says the way you sow, sowing is about opening your hand and being generous with your money. Generous to God and generous to the poor. And, and it's, you need to understand that the, the metaphor really works because sowing is an act of faith. Maybe you'd never, imagine you'd never heard of farming and somebody says to you, now what I want you to do, I want you to take this food that you're going to use, to, that, that's actually very good, you can grind it up and use it to eat, I want you to take it and throw it in the ground. You're going to say, stupid. What a stupid thing to do. But actually, a farmer knows that if he sows it in faith, he puts it in the ground, and it says, Jesus says, he sows it in the ground, and all by itself, it, does, it, it grows first to the corner, then the ear, and then the fall. The farmer knows that if they sow their seed in the ground, it's going to grow. It's not like, oh, I don't know, that, that, that works or not. But we think, if I give my money away, then it's gone forever. I'm throwing it into the ground. The farmer must open his hand and entrust the seed to the soil. And in the same way, God is encouraging me and you to open our hands and entrust our money to God. And Paul says you can do as much, sow as much or little as you want. <clears throat> you can take the giving envelope and you can put in as much or as little as you want. You can put nothing in there and come to the front and pop it in and nobody's going to know. You can do as much as you much or little as you want. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Oh, Howard, you've got to try harder. You want me to open my wallet? For God loves a cheerful giver. Now, there's some promises that go with this. There's some promises that go with this. He says, he will bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need... You'll overflow in every good work. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will increase your store of seed and enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. Paul is saying that there's a promise that if you give, you will have enough. You'll have all that you need. Not all that you want, but all that you need. And you will have bread for food. The psalm that Naomi read from the beginning of the worship, actually, if you go on into verse 25, it says, uh, the, uh, Solomon writing, it says, I've been young and now I am old, and yet I've not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging bread. What? No. If you sow your money, you will have enough. I've not seen the righteous forsaken. Or his children begging bread. But God promises more than to meet your daily needs. He promises that it's going to transform your life. God promises that those who excel in the grace of giving will overflow in every good work. Wouldn't that be nice? And reap a harvest of righteousness. Good giving is God's graceful way to make you holy. Let me tell my example of my story. Uh, my wife's toes will curl at this point. We weren't married, so that's fine. It wasn't her responsibility. 
I was hopeless with money. And, it, and I, I never gave. I was hanging on as a Christian. Brought up in a Christian family, I was hanging on as a Christian. But my money was telling stories. It was like an indicator light on a traffic car on my engine dashboard that was telling me something was wrong. My credit card bills were getting larger and larger. And I was a head of geography by this time. I was earning good money. Well, good money for teachers, you know, whatever. <laughs> I was earning good money, but I just kept on wanting more. I kept on insatiably spending, 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 uh, so much so that I was constantly in debt. Now that was a warning light of where my life was going. For the next three or four years, I basically went and had pleasure and sex and foolishness. My what I was doing with my money was an indicator of where my life was going. And I've been doing this job long enough to know that sometimes those that will struggle with, with debt might struggle with porn. Those that struggle with, with their money might struggle with trusting God and faithfulness. Giving is a God's way to make you holy. I remember... One person, I, I, God had graciously reached out his hand and grabbed me and took me back. And I remember a guy saying, why are you giving your money to the bank? It's like, why are you giving interest to the bank? You don't give to God, but you give your interest to the bank. Because I didn't pay my credit card off every time. Why are you giving interest to the bank? He says, they're using your debt to enslave you. Who's in charge? And I thought, oh God, you must be in charge. So I thought, right, I'm going to give. I'm going to give. Tom said, similar, different, not as deep and dark, a story on, on Wednesday about like the journey of giving. You, it, it, it makes you righteous. It gives you overflow in every good work. And it means that, that grasping hands, the never enough heart and the never satisfied life, Giving grace opens hands and fills hearts and overflows lives. And it says, and God, at one, and, and, and God once you've got that, he's going to trust you with more cash. So if you've got a lot of cash, it might be for this reason. And you will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through, your general, and, and through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. In other words, though, if you've got more than you need, that, that, that is a sign that you can give more. That the virtuous circle of sowing and reaping and giving and being blessed and generous uh, can, can work more. God doesn't, uh, I, we're not one of these churches that says, God will, if you give a little bit to God, he'll bless you so that you can have all the luxuries of you, uh, you want and a, and a Learjet and all of that. You can have a Learjet, but you've, if, you've bought a Learjet, if you've got a Learjet, you better be giving a lot of money. Because otherwise you just fill in the black hole and the Learjet won't fit in. Matt Chandler, American pastor from the Midwest, says this, the motive of our giving is not begrudging submission. And it's not like, arm behind your back in a wrestling match, begrudging submission. 
Instead, there is a transformation of our souls when the grace and mercy of God is freely lavished upon us in Christ Jesus. As we experience the generosity of God, we become, like God, generous. Let's finish with this. So we always finish with the hero of the story. Point three, marvel at the giving grace of Jesus and the gospel. So look at others and what they give. Look at the results of giving and how it transforms you. Now look at Jesus. Paul points the Corinthians to the gospel. So he urged, so, uh, he urged Titus, so we urged Titus, just as he had made a, uh, earlier had made a start, to bring also to the completion this act of grace on your part. It, it, with giving, you, you often have to make a start. Some of you might, might just want to make a start. You might think, well, I'll make a start. I've never given, I'm just going to make a start. But, but, but Paul's exhortation is making a start isn't where you finish. The, the, there's a journey of completion that needs to be done. There's an act of grace on your part. And then he says, look, guys, you're good at this. He says, since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete eagerness, and in the love we share with you, see all, that you also excel in the grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the genuine nature of your love by comparing it to the eagerness of others. He's done that with the Macedonians. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, that through his poverty you might become rich. I think we could say to God first, you're great. This is a good church. This is a good church. I, I, you know, I put this, God first, since you excel in friendship, building genuine community, loving the truth, serving, sharing the life of Jesus with those in and beyond the church. Let's all of us be in complete eagerness. And yes, we're great. I mean, I was just staggered. It was really nice at, at the, at the, at the um, together night when I said that we were 177,000 was our income last year. That's amazing, isn't it? You know, we're doing it. We've made a great start. We've done 170,000, that's amazing. We've made a great start. But let's now all excel in the gift of giving. Paul says this is a mark of your genuine faith. If you're looking for an indicator of how you're doing well, doing spiritually, he says, I want to test the genuine nature of your love by complaining it with others. Or by this giving, you've proved yourself and your obedience that overflows from the faith in the gospel. How do you know what you're doing? Randy Alcorn, in his book, Money, Possessions and Eternity, wrote this. Money is the litmus test of our true character. It is an index of our spiritual life. Our use of money tells a deep and consequential story. It forms our biography. That's your life story. In a sense, how you relate to money and possessions is the story of your life. Phil Moore, in his book that I quoted earlier, says... No statement of faith reveals what we truly believe as clearly as our bank statements. You can see that is not my bank statement. There's one or two many, too many digits on there. <laughs> but look at your bank statement. I don't know if you get bank statements electronically or paperback. What, what, what does your bank statement say? My bank statement says I love my house. 800 quid says I love my house. Now, I'm not telling you whether I love God more or not. But that's a little question straight away, isn't it? Uh, okay, I'm not giving 800 quid to the church. So my bank statement tells a story, doesn't it? 
I've got a golf membership. I never could afford that before when I was a poor person. And now I can. How much do I spend on that? I was talking to Mark Rayfield and said, how much do your golf clubs cost? So I thought I got really cheap golf clubs. And I added them all up. I'm not even saying because Nona's sitting there. <laughs> and I think 50 quid? That's like a, a sand wedge. A rubbish sand wedge. 120. And, and you know, I think, oh, man, I put 50 quid in. Oh, I love Jesus. Jesus, I love you. Lord, I give you my heart. Scots are not known for that. We're about York, a bit like Yorkshire people. We're not known for our uh, big-hearted generosity. <laughs> Robert J. McCracken <laughs> says this. Get to know two things about a person. Ooh, that's interesting, isn't it? What shall we find out? How they earn their money and how they spend it. Oh, you knew it was going to be that, didn't you? Then you'll have a clue about their character. You'll have a searchlight that shows up the inner recesses of their soul. You'll know all that you need to know about their holiness. We talked about that. Their motivations, their driving desires, their real religion, their real God. So we've got to look somewhere else. A bit like the Philippians had to look somewhere else. How do we excel in this genuine grace of giving? We know that because actually the genuine mark of God is that he gives. Paul says this beautiful verse. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor so that through his poverty you might become rich. One writer put it like this. The one clothed in glory was stripped naked and nailed to a cross to give us the riches of eternal life. Jesus is the one who emptied himself so you could be filled. Now the thing is, I can look at special offerings and I've sat in where you've sat and you can say, well, I'm not really that motivated by an office hub. You know, and we still don't know whether we get it or not. We're we're, we're working through some details with them. Oh, you know, to be honest, you know, Lena, she's a nice lady. Joe Moats, you know, to be honest, if the office runs smoothly, don't give a fig about that. Yeah, Andy and Vic are nice, but they're gone. I've sort of forgotten them. And you can think, well, I'm not really interested in, in, in the particular items that you've put on the menu today. But in the one sense we need to kind of say where, where, where we intend the money to go, but, but actually the bottom line is you give it to Jesus. Ultimately we give because Jesus captivated us. Let's finish with a quote from Tim Keller who always manages to sum things up too well. <clears throat> to the degree that you grasp the gospel Money will have no rule or dominion over you. Think on his costly grace until it changes you into generous people. What breaks the power of money over over us is deepening our understanding of the salvation of Christ, what you have in him, and living out the changes that that understanding makes in your heart. Let me read that again. What breaks the power of money over us is deepening our understanding of the salvation of Christ. What you have in him 
and living out the changes that that understanding makes in your heart. Faith in the gospel of Jesus restructures our budgets, our motivations, our self-understanding, and our view of the world. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.